0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have three authors on the show, Matt Wasniewski, Kathleen Johnson, and Laura Turner O'Hara. They were part of a team that put together a wonderful book called Black Americans in Congress, 1870-2007. to Uh, the book is very timely, obviously, because America is about to inaugurate its first black president. If you're interested in Barack Obama's predecessors, then I highly recommend you read this terrific book. Uh, it is full of lavish illustrations and accompanied by some wonderful essays by the aforementioned authors, Matt, Kathleen, and Laura. I very much enjoyed talking to them today, and I hope that you enjoy listening to the interview. Here it is. Hello, everybody. Hi,
1: hey, Marshall. Hi, Marshall. Hi,
0: Marshall. Um, I'm Marshall Poe, and this is New Books in History, and I'm happy to say today that we have um, Matt Wasniewski on the show, and Kathleen Johnson, and Laura Turner O'Hara, and that was in no particular order, I should say, and we'll be talking about a book that they uh, edited and co-wrote called Black Americans in Congress, 1870 to 2007. Uh, The book is very timely, obviously, because Barack Obama, our first African-American president, is going to be inaugurated. next week is that right next
1: week that's right on tuesday
0: on tuesday that's right is it cold there in washington
1: it's cold right now for by washington standards supposed to be uh, highs in the teens or low 20s tomorrow
0: that's not cold
1: yeah well
2: <laughs> that is,
0: guys that is not cold when i rode my bike in this morning it was minus 23 without wind chill. I don't I don't you, that, when you're you're a yeah, braver man than I am. That is serious. Braver, I think, just dumber. I don't know. I was. I remember last year we were having horrible winter, and I walked in my students, and I just said, "Why do we live here? I'm not sure what, it was, what happened? Like, you know, there's Florida. We have Florida. You know, it's not like we can do that. But anyway, uh, so no, I'm 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 hail and hearty and well. I made it in on my bike today, but I'm very excited to talk to you about this book. Um, I wondered if we could begin, though, by asking a couple of you, that would be Kathleen and Laura, to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into public history. I would say that um, we have already asked Matt this question in a previous interview, so we're going to give him a pass. We'll send him out to get coffee for everybody. Okay, I'll keep quiet. Go get, go get coffee for everybody. <laughs> so, Kathleen, would you like to start, if that's okay?
3: Sure, that's fine. Um, I was born in Massachusetts, and, of course, there is a lot of history in New England, so I, I definitely became interested in history at that point. And my parents were both teachers, so they really instilled a love of reading and learning in me. And also took my brother and I to a lot of the historic sites, especially Concord was an annual trip for us. I ended up going to college at Columbia, and I was a history major inspired by my brother who went on to become a history professor.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And when I graduated, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. Most of my college roommates and friends went off to law school or grad school, but I decided to accept an offer to play basketball in Austria.
2: Yeah,
0: that's right. I remember. That's so terrific.
3: Right. So when I came back, I decided to then teach in New York City, and I taught there for a few years, and I really enjoyed it. And one thing I think that awakened my interest in public history was I became involved in an after-school group that we called ourselves the New York City Explorers, Mm -hmm. and we went to museums and public history sites and I really saw my students even the ones that weren't previously interested in history become fascinated with the subject and from there I moved to North Carolina ended up in grad school to get a master's in education took a few history classes had some wonderful professors and once again just kind of fell into the public history path realizing that this is something where I could do some research study history and also do some teaching And then I saw the job description for the Office of History and Preservation, which combined... All of my loves, and I was lucky enough to get the position.
0: Wow, that's great! That's a terrific story, especially as I've told you about the basketball part because I I, I played basketball next. Week. I had just retired on the same age as Michael Jordan to give it away. I just like to, I just like to put my name in a sentence with Michael Jordan. I don't really <laughs> don't tell people that I don't know. Well, I but think
3: you'd have to tell your listeners about the Barack Obama. that Yeah, you that's against. true. No,
0: I, I did play with Barack Obama. That was that's true. I played with Barack Obama, and it was it was quite fun. Um, it was good. I was going to tell the anecdote about how I was on the. Uh, college basketball team that set the NCAA record for consecutive losses.
3: <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> and what number was that? It was a lot. It was several years
0: of losses. Yeah, we never. This is Grinnell College, and we were not. Um, yeah, people were doing other things at Grinnell College. You know, you're a large college. It's not really big with basketball, but I, I really I loved the place. so that was fantastic.
3: So, well, at anyway, Columbia, we were always happy if we could get a 500 season. So I, I do understand yeah, oh, where you're coming from. 500
0: would be. Oh, that would be. Great. We won a game. That would be.
3: Great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Laura,
4: why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I was uh, I was born in New Hampshire. I'm sure. Uh but my dad joined the navy when i was 3. So i lived everywhere. <laughs> and uh from Hawaii to Bermuda and everywhere in between. Is usually how i describe it. Mm-hmm. Um but my my dad being uh uh in the military had sort of an amateur love for military history and uh i kind of caught the bug from him a little bit. Um and uh for instance when we, when we lived in Hawaii, we uh we would go into the the hangar where his uh squadron was stationed mm-hmm. and there would be bullet holes in the staircase. Oh, yeah, right. And uh the bullet holes were from the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor uh-huh. as they as they flew over Oahu. Mm-hmm. So uh I, I used to put my fingers in those holes as I used to walk oh, up man. the stairs and just found it absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um and again we you know, we had uh frequent trips to Pearl Harbor and, and other sites uh in Hawaii, mm-hmm. uh kind of like Kathleen having her family trips. That that was sort of what we did as well. Um, but I went into college. Uh, kind of wanted to go into to journalism and social science. Uh, I was more interested in, in sort of the writing aspect of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up at Stanford University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually ran cross country and track I mean, there. <laughs> <yeah>. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, we have a kind of an office of athletes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, my writing class, though so we had a, we had a re- required writing class my freshman year, and. Um, a very, very forward thinking TA <laughs> took us on a tour of the Hoover Institution archives.
2: Yeah.
4: Um as one of the, the sort of parts of our writing class. We had to write a big research paper and she was showing us the archives as, as one of our resources and I absolutely fell in love with the with the primary sources there. I mm-hmm. I don't think before that I realized that you could actually you know handle some of these documents. And um so I ended up doing my, my research paper that quarter on uh Japanese-American interns um, from Stanford.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So uh, definitely got interested in history at that point, decided to be a history major the next year, started taking the core classes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of, of required classes in college because right. of that. Yeah. But uh, oh. I ended up writing my uh, senior honor thesis. I ended up doing uh, some research uh, over the summer between my junior and senior year at the National Archives uh, here in College Park, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And uh Really fell in love with DC. It's it's a town of transients, which makes yeah. it perfect for a Navy brat. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I I decided to try to come back here and and pursue a public history position. That's one of the few places, I feel like, where you can find a public history position straight out of college. Oh, I think that's so. absolutely,
0: that's absolutely right, and it's a it's a good tale for anybody mm-hmm. who is thinking about going into uh, history, or I would say research generally, mm-hmm. and, and that is that um, D.C. is a terrific place to do that. There are just thousands and thousands of federal jobs that um, you know that one can get. I try to send my students in that direction as, as often mm-hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they all tend to think of going to graduate school and then becoming history professors, which actually is, is in many ways a, a more difficult career path. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that when I worked in D.C the, um, I had friends that worked in the government, and uh, you guys actually take your holidays off, which academics don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 have that nice G rating scale where you sort of get raises every once in a while. Academics don't get raises, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and there are these and the books that we have to write tend to be rather dry. And yours, obviously, in this case, are much more interesting. So, yeah, I would I would uh, counsel anybody to to uh, mm-hmm. pursue that kind of a career path. I think it's 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 really it's really a terrific thing, and it's a, it's an honor to have you guys on. The, on the program there are things that you can you, know, you can do history outside the academy
1: and, and well, very, very successfully go ahead matt yeah no that and you and i've talked about this before but the fact that you're you're actually uh... telling your students this makes you somewhat unique because i know mm-hmm. my my uh... my program uh... at least in graduate school that the the, the, the first thought was to turn people out for the academy
2: yeah.
1: and uh... Even though University of Maryland places a lot of folks in federal government history positions, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's not a lot of promotion. You kind of have to scratch a little bit below the surface to find yeah. it. But once you do, there's a great network of of folks out there, and yeah. uh, you know really would encourage any graduate students uh, or undergraduate students to to look into the possibility of doing public history. Yeah, it's very
4: yeah. interesting. I, I started at the Center for Legislative Archives at the mm-hmm. National Archives, mm-hmm. and, I, and I worked there for a year and. Actually, was through folks at NARA and folks here that I found out about the job here. So it was definitely through the through the public historian network mm-hmm. that I ended up here. <laughs> so.
1: And in D.C., we have a little a little known group, the Society for History in the Federal Government, mm-hmm. which uh, has a website shfg.org, and uh, it's it's the the community of folks who do federal history inside the Beltway and mm-hmm. some folks from outside the Beltway, and that's mm-hmm. a great way to. to kind of see what's happening uh, in the in the public history realm in Washington, D.C.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell my students, and I'd like your opinion on whether this is correct or not, you know, they say, yeah, well, I'd like to go work for X organization in Washington. And what I tell them is go work for any organization in Washington, get into the network, and then apply for jobs once you actually have a federal job, any federal job. Is that, does that sort of make sense?
1: uh i think it does uh you know in in, in some places i'll i'll use one example the, the state department uh history office which is is uh, produces the foreign relations series mm-hmm. which is a great series going back to the the mid 19th century mm-hmm. um uh, a lot of the folks who start out there are in uh, not what would be considered a full-time federal job. They're brought on as kind of contractors. Mm-hmm. And and that's an example of, you know, you, you you come to a place, work for a while, get your foot in the door, and, uh, you know, that opens other avenues to, to go to another federal history officer, perhaps turn that job into a full-time job. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. I actually know somebody who works at a State as a historian. I also have another colleague who trained as a Russianist and Central Europeanist who then was hired by the... Office at the Justice Department that uh, hunts war criminals. I'm like, how cool is that? Like, <laughs> guy hunts Nazis. I, you know, what do I do all day? I, you know, I,
2: know,
0: I grade paper. He hunts Nazis. I grade papers. Um, anyway, so it's terrific. And and uh, the, the, as I say, that that should be a good example for anybody who who wants to go on for a career in history and um, in 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 federal service. And obviously, federal service is a good thing. You know, serving your nation that's a good thing. Uh, as our as our um, as our uh, uh, as Barack has told us recently. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about the book um the book is as i said black americans in congress uh 1870 2007 why don't one of you tell us uh h- how this book came about
1: uh i'll, I'll do that okay. uh it's it's got a long history uh it, it goes back to uh 1977 when uh congress uh authorized the publication of the first what was then uh essentially a, a booklet about um african americans in congress um and that was uh at the initiative of Congresswoman Lindy Boggs from Louisiana, who was a uh, a history teacher and a great proponent of history, and also Edward Brooke, who at the time was uh, the the black American senator, uh, the sole black American senator representing uh, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. The book went through another edition in 1989. And uh, then the House uh, and Senate again passed a resolution for a third edition, which this book is. And like the, the, the Women in Congress book, we basically took the earlier editions and greatly revamped them. The, uh, the profiles in the earlier editions were 250 words to 400 words, and uh, they were just arranged alphabetically. Mm-hmm. In this book, we've taken it, we've made it chronological. Uh, So we introduce members in generations. And like the Women in Congress book, uh, this book uh, uh, lays out four generations of African-Americans, long generations, uh, who uh, come to serve in Congress. Mm -hmm. And uh, the profiles are greatly expanded in some cases for some folks uh, like uh, Oscar DePriest or – Uh, Adam Clayton Powell. uh, The profiles are up to 2,2500 words. Mm -hmm. And then we've set off each generation with a contextual essay that sets the scene for what's going on in Congress institutionally in both the House and the Senate, and then also uh, what's happening in wider American society, Mm -hmm. Um, social trends, um, larger political trends, and really set the scene for the experiences these people have uh, once they come to congress and and uh, and then the experiences that are shaping congress 's priorities um, uh, that are happening you know on the larger american scene
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I should tell our listeners that the book is uh, uh, absolutely beautifully produced it is full of uh wonderful illustrations and figures and charts and graphs uh it measures i don't know i'm bad at this kind of thing it measures i don't know 12 by 16 uh, and it's quite a hefty volume it is is, is very suitable to, to put in a prominent place in your living room uh, for people just to leaf through it's it's a it's a real uh it's a real work of, of great craftsmanship i think um <laughs> thank and you I... what if there are more history books like it Thank you.
1: I I'd, I'd just like to throw in uh, two, the two other folks from our publications department who mm-hmm. aren't on the phone now, but who helped tremendously with the book. Were Aaron Ramada, who did uh, a, a ton of the the uh, image research and found some mm-hmm. some fantastic images, rare images, and uh, also uh, took the lead on doing appendices for the book. And mm-hmm. then uh, Terrence Rucker, who also wrote some of the the latter profiles
2: in the mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm.
0: Let me um begin. We will go through the uh, the four. Eras, the uh, four generations, in just a second, but I want to begin with a, a more broader historiographical question, um, and that concerns terminology. Uh, and I'd like each of you to say a few words about this to see what you feel. Uh, the, the book is called Black Americans in Congress. Uh, for some of this period, the historically accurate term would have been Negro. And one might think that you would even say African-Americans in Congress. How did you decide uh, as an editorial board and what do you believe as individuals um, should be the sort of protocol for using this terminology? Actually, if I could just put you on the spot, Laura, why don't you start?
4: Um, well, uh, there is a portion of the introduction of the book where we, we talk about the terminology and that the uh, the resolution, uh, the, the print resolution uh, authorizing the book is actually black Americans in Congress. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's sort of a continuity with the earlier volumes. Earlier volumes were were Black Americans in Congress as well. Um,
0: and that does that decision reflect the time in which it was originally commissioned?
1: Um, uh, they could have probably. Said I probably you know, I, I yeah, don't they, read,
4: I don't read mine, yeah, so I don't I'm not quite sure why they were uh,
2: uh-huh.
4: why they decided to call it what it what it was. Uh-huh. But this sort of this kept the continuity with the earlier sure. period.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um as well, the the book also dovetails with the the very influential caucus here on Capitol Hill, the Congressional Black Caucus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, everyone whose members uh, past and present through 2007 are profiled in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we also found in researching the book and talking to various scholars of Black history that a position of the African American community prefers that term, well, another prefers Black American. So. Mm-hmm. It actually was nice as a writer too to have two different words to work oh, yeah. with to, oh, right. to craft yeah. your sentences so exactly. it ended up being uh it, we ended up sort of using the two words the, or the two phrases
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh
4: interchangeably mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and again we explained that in our introduction yeah. up front right. exactly. you know? and terminology you know when when other words were used when negro was used in a in a quote for instance, mm-hmm. we would keep it in the quote but uh but the two terms that we use throughout the book in our own writing were the for black American and African American.
0: Mm-hmm. Kathleen, do you have anything particular to add to
3: that? Um, I guess, you know, pretty much echoing what Laura had said, and, and it wasn't as much of an issue for the, a lot of the members that I worked on in the, the 20th century. Um, what I found going through research for members would refer to themselves, early part of the century be more black Americans, later part of the century the be African Americans. But we really just decided, since both terms were were commonly used, that we would interchange use them interchangeably.
0: hmm hmm I see. Matt, anything?
1: No, um, yeah, they hit the highlights. I mean, you know, the print resolution for the book kind of sets the title for us, yeah, and right. so we we work from there. Um, we did go through pains to uh, have the manuscript uh, reviewed by uh, uh, African American black scholars and uh there were no no red flags raised by using the terms interchangeably yeah um and and again uh, as as Laura had pointed out we did find that that there was a portion of the the black community that prefers uh black american and uh another portion that prefers african american i mean it's you know it's uh, one of the things that you know we try and get across in this book is that uh, opinion on issues whether it's uh, you know how a, a group, of, uh, ethnic group, is is termed, or or how what their stance is on a on a political issue. It's never monolithic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the things that uh, you know perhaps is subtly expressed in in the usage of those terms throughout
2: mm-hmm. the book is, mm-hmm. is that
1: there's a different opinion even within the, the uh, African-American black community uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about the term.
0: Yeah, it is a difficult problem. I, You know, again, I, I, a professor of mine once said that you really should call people what they want to be called, but sometimes it's difficult to determine what they want to be called. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, it, it really is it's, it's kind of a challenge in many ways. Um, so why don't we begin talking about the uh, four eras that you um, single out in the book? And I guess, um, Laura, you did the 19th century members. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it did. Yeah,
0: that's right. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what makes that period. I guess it starts in 1870 and ends in 18, remind me, I don't know,
4: 1887? Uh, the, the first one is uh, 1887.
0: Yes, and it's but called, the, the, right, it's called the symbolic generation of, you say symbolic generation of black Americans in Congress. What makes it the symbolic generation?
4: Well, the the first generation of, of black Americans in Congress, and in, in this case we we have 17 of them who served in the, basically within the Reconstruction era. Mm-hmm. And, uh they were sort of symbolic in a way that they were symbolic of the Union victory and of the radical Republicans who were the, the dominant force in Congress at that time, of their sort of utopian vision of, of that emphasized political equality of all American men, and mm-hmm. I emphasize men. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, many of these radical Republicans were former abolitionists. They were from sort of the upper Midwest and uh, in New England. And they basically when the, you know, they won the Civil War, when the Union won the Civil War, they said, Okay, well this is our chance to sort of rehabilitate the South in some ways and bring these and bring these uh African American men into the fold. And uh so they they were actually always in constant friction with uh with President Andrew Johnson who actually believed in sort of limited federal intervention in the South and, and a lot of this, this early era right after the Civil War and the politics is, is a story of their of their back and forth mm-hmm. uh between the with between Congress and the president um mm-hmm. that they tried to impeach him over <laughs>
2: so, um
4: basically that their legislative initiatives uh despite some of Johnson's op- opposition uh they, they passed the reconstruction amendments which um these, these radical republicans in congress which freed the slaves granted them citizenship and granted voting rights to all african american men and then uh created uh several um essentially the Freedmen's Bureau, which provided social services and education for them. And uh, as well, they attempted to sort of rehabilitate the South and bring the South back into the Union, but on on several conditions that that had to do with bringing African-Americans into full citizenship and voting rights. Um, Mm -hmm. They divided the South into five military districts, and they required for the return to statehood... uh, that uh, new constitutional conventions on the state level and and which included um enfranchising uh black men and the ratification of the reconstruction amendment
2: mm-hmm.
4: as qualifications to return to the union mm-hmm. so these these states came to the in return to the union with these these more friendly state constitutions towards these new voters mm-hmm. as well as you know, sort of tacitly supporting the the reconstruction amendment and uh really opened up a lot of opportunities for for black voters and for for black men in the South, especially those who had been previously educated or uh, even free prior to the Civil War. Um, Only about half of the first generation or or a little over half uh, were born slaves, Mm -hmm. and and some of them were either freed as young children or... um, were sort of given some some better opportunities within their enslavement for education and for
2: mm-hmm. and
4: you know ability to work um outside of their their master's homes and, and those mm-hmm. types of opportunities mm-hmm. yeah. so th- that's sort of the setting for these these people to come to Congress, and when they would when they arrive in Congress, there's this big fanfare this is this is it, this is what we were fighting for. Uh, you know, that all men are created equal, we have we have black men in Congress here. In a lot of ways they were strictly symbolic because even though they were sort of cheered and, and welcomed by by the radical Republicans in Congress, in a lot of ways uh these black men were politically marginalized throughout mm-hmm. this early period. A lot of their legislative initiatives uh basically didn't didn't make it uh even onto the floor or in, in some cases, you know, they they rarely passed and uh I think a good example of that is the, the attempt to uh, reimburse depositors at the failed Friedman Savings and Trust, otherwise known as the Friedman's Bank. Uh, many members put in put in legislation to try to reimburse those those depositors who had lost all their money when the bank failed. Um, I think it was 18. I'm blanking on the date at this point, but 1872. And uh, they, uh, and, and, and none of those bills passed. Um, so that's sort of an an example of of their legislative initiative mm-hmm. not really being uh seen through but it, and in a lot of ways they ended up being cheerleaders um for some of the radical republican initiatives having to do with with black americans mm-hmm. and they they provided testimony and uh we have a long section on the civil rights bill in this first contextual essay uh which the the eighteen seventy five civil rights bill which um thought uh equal accommodations and in, in, initially said equal accommodations in uh public transportation, uh uh public uh, accommodations, uh juries, schools and uh um these people the, the black Americans in Congress ended up sort of telling their tale about, you know, discrimination on the railroads and, and difficulty with their educations mm-hmm. and uh and really rallying uh uh, for that cause, but really it was it was the white leadership that drove the uh the, the passage of that the, the very diluted version of that bill
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what uh could you do you have any favorite characters among these seventeen African american legislatures maybe you could um talk about yeah, there's a, there's
4: a lot of really great characters. I really encourage people to read this portion of the book um there's some There's some interesting people here. one of my favorites is uh is Robert Elliott out of South Carolina. Um, mainly because I think he he really turned a lot of the the initial conventions upside down. He was he was very dark skinned, and and a lot of these men at this era were were mixed race. In fact, 17 of the 22 elected between 1870 and 19 um, and it, well 1898 or served between 1870 and 1901 were um, mixed race. Uh-huh. So his dark skin was was fairly prominent on the House floor. Mm-hmm. His uh, his three other colleagues at that point were, were mixed race mm-hmm. so um, I think people kind of looked at him and said, "Whoa, this is really happening mm-hmm. um He also was was quite the astute politician and had an amazing speaking presence
2: mm-hmm.
4: um and so you could tell he was very well educated he actually has has kind of a colorful history, which was was fun to uncover uh his biographer Peggy Lamson only recently uncovered that he's sort of invented a lot of his own history. Mm-hmm. Um she she wrote his biography in nineteen seventy three, but previous to that he'd he'd said that he was born in Boston, that he had been educated in England at Eton College, mm-hmm. that he worked for a London barrister and that he fought in the Civil War and was wounded and uh had come up with this very nice, colorful history which which probably just made him a a great candidate for political office.
0: Yeah, that that can't um, that can't be his history because that's my history. <laughs> <laughs> I did all those things. No, um, I didn't
4: do that. No. You know, in, in all likelihood, he was born to West Indian parents yes. in England. Um, was was received a public education in England, but not at Eton. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I uh, learned a typesetter's trade and, and ended up in a British naval warship in Boston in 1867. Um, Historical record kind of picks him up in Charleston, working for a, a fellow Black congressman, Richard Cain, who owned a newspaper called the Missionary Record at that point, mm-hmm. and he was a journalist basically for Richard Cain, and and got into involved in the South Carolina politics of the time in the post-Civil War era. It, it was really sort of a, a an open door for Black men at that point mm-hmm. to get involved with politics and. Uh, he became a very popular member of the state assembly and uh, was just had this amazing photographic memory. His mm-hmm. law partner once sort of commented that he knew everything and everyone um, about politics in the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1870, he won the U.S. House seat for this west central South Carolina district that included Columbia. Um, it was a little bit farther west than most of his colleagues had, had uh, districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the districts sort of centered around the, the Sea Islands and, and Charleston. Um, but he uh and that actually in, incidentally was Preston Brooks' former seat mm-hmm. uh who had who was a famous caning of Charles Sumner in eighteen fifty six. Yeah. So um he was actually probably a little bit more progressive than his black colleagues in his legislative initiatives. Um he was firmly against offering amnesty to former Confederates and uh was of course this, this um wild proponent of the of the civil rights bill and uh he actually gave a very impressive speech on the bill in uh, January of 1874, following up on uh, the speech given by Alexander Stevens of Georgia, who is, of course, the, the former Confederate vice president. Mm-hmm. And Stevens, who was, a, who was a little bit sickly at the time and was, was in a wheelchair and kind of gave this, this this sort of droning speech, was followed up by Eliot's very eloquent, very fiery speech. Mm-hmm. And he, he was quite the young man. and an amazing speaker in the in the newspaper accounts this time and Elliot was a popular figure in the newspapers. Um were just amazed at how well he had done and, and how beautifully he had spoken and were saying, you know, we could all learn something from this man.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um Elliot though, like a lot of South Carolinians, uh, got very involved in, in state politics and he actually resigned um halfway through his second term mm-hmm. to return to state to the state legislature and he actually served as speaker there. However, when, uh, when the Democrats took over the state legislature just a few years later, um, Elliot found himself sort of put out of politics. Uh, he ended up kind to set up a law practice, but um, he, like so many of these, these men who have these very tragic endings, um, ended up dying in poverty uh, in New Orleans uh, from complications from earlier malaria infections. <laughs> Yeah, well, so he, actually,
0: I, I did notice that as a kind of commonality mm-hmm. among their biographies. Mm-hmm. Is they, many of them came from nothing, and when they were done with their congressional careers, they went back to nothing.
4: Absolutely. And well, they, there's, there's Alonzo Reince here. I think is the, the most shocking <laughs> example of that. He he was lieutenant governor of South Carolina at one point, and he actually died in a boarding house. Yeah. Um, without a penny to his name. Right, yeah, so.
0: that's a, it's a very different experience for senators and congress people today.
2: Mm-hmm. I can
0: I can yes we we don't need to go into that. <laughs> but in any <laughs> event uh let's move on into the the uh, the second era and that is um the negroes temporary farewell it's called in the book and uh we will turn to kathleen this was your bailiwick is that right it was actually mine oh, it was yours uh, yeah sorry. yeah okay, good. that's, that's fun yeah cuz um, it's, it's it's a difficult thing to write about because it's the history of a kind of non event you know
1: right Yeah. You know. the so, the title the, the the title comes from uh itself comes from a quote by george white who was the uh last african american in congress for a very long stretch uh and it comes from a floor speech uh in which uh uh, he was essentially promising that uh, African-Americans would return at some point and, as he put it, rise again like a phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very long stretch, and this is it, this was a difficult portion of the book to write. It, it deserved its own essay, but there were so few members to write about, mm-hmm. and that's really what the contextual essays are built around it. In this period from 1887 to all the way through 1901, when – when George White leaves uh, Congress, there are only five members who serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from 1901 to 1929, we have you know nearly a three-decade stretch where there's uh, there's no African American in the uh, in the federal legislature. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a story that you know, so far as Congress is concerned, you know, after the formal end of Reconstruction in 1877, its attention shifts from essentially from principle to pragmatism. You know, from this dream of Kind of creating a uh, a multiracial society in the south that the uh, that the radical Republicans had to a lot of the pressing issues uh, that had to be addressed in the late nineteenth century um, caused by the you know centralization of power during the Civil war, industrialization, the nation's physical growth, um uh, urban growth. And then, you know, also America's rising role in in world affairs. So Mm -hmm. Congress had plenty of distractions to, uh, in many respects, eagerly turn its eye away from race issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But much of the story also happens away from Capitol Hill. And that's another part of the story we wanted to tell and and to get across that, you know, change, as it uh, so often does in American history, really doesn't come from. Political dictate it comes from social movements mm-hmm. and demographic movements that are happening far away from Capitol Hill, far away from Washington, and the politicians have to respond to these things mm-hmm. ultimately and and um one of the things that's happening, of course, is that once the occupying federal forces pull out of the South, the uh, Republican governments collapse and uh, the former Confederates uh, and uh, the Democratic Party seizes control in the state governments in the South. This is a process that kind of happens over the decade of the 1880s mm-hmm. but by the 1890s what you see going on in the books is it's not just laws it's also through custom in the south too which is an important thing to consider it is is that jim crow segregation begins to take hold mm-hmm. um uh, everything from you know uh, the poll tax uh, where you charge someone two dollars a two dollar tax to vote or one dollar tax to the grandfather clause, if your grandfather voted during before the Civil War, then you can vote now if mm-hmm. you can't you 're disqualified and of mm-hmm. course, that disqualifies almost every mm-hmm. african American white primary um all these things go on in the book, state constitutions are changed, and essentially African Americans are kind of winnowed out of the political process mm-hmm. in the South. Uh, And therefore, uh, all these members who serve in the 19th century, are Republican uh, African-Americans elected from southern states, every last one of them, and uh, African-American political participation in Congress just drops off a cliff. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are also demographic changes that are going on here that that are important for the latter eras, and the most important is the great migration of, uh, of black Americans away from rural districts in the south to northern urban districts. Mm-hmm. And this occurs because uh, massive numbers of people are looking for employment, mm-hmm. which they find on the eve of World War One, and, and then uh, uh, consequently throughout the, the 20th century uh, in, in places like Chicago, uh, St. Louis, uh, Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh and the great migration has really profound consequences for for black political participation in the 20th century mm-hmm. all of a sudden it shifts it, it it happens in the north uh in urban areas and in in the era that Kathleen will talk about it it shifts party loyalty as well
2: mm-hmm.
1: um the thing we also wanted to make clear from a, a congressional perspective was it institutionally this isn't a happy story either that uh you know segregation dominated american society and congress was a real reflection of that um you had uh the federal government of course becomes um not by decree but by by practice by custom uh segregated uh really uh, systematically during the Woodrow Wilson administration, mm-hmm. um, beginning in 1913, mm-hmm. and uh, in the House itself and in the Senate, the galleries are segregated. Uh, kind of, you know, de facto segregation. Uh, you had a uh, uh, not only a, a black gallery but a also a women's gallery uh, separate from the men. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, uh, segregation in the House restaurant. Um, And uh, you, you know, throughout this period, you can read uh, just um, what today are astounding floor speeches by Southern members who, on the rare occasions when uh, uh, Northern members uh, talk about things like perhaps enforcing the 14th Amendment rights of blacks in the South Mm -hmm. or passing an anti-lynching law, deliver what could only be termed as racially uh, racial screeds mm-hmm. on the floor, uh, and it's 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 an amazing thing to look at. Yet, there, you know, there's a few brave souls during this time period too, and that's another thing. You know, there's not any African American in Congress, but there are here and there advocates for the Black community.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and here, you know, a couple of the folks that were mentioned in the book, a guy named Leonidas Dyer, who was a representative from Missouri who uh who pushed an anti lynching law through the House with the help of the NAACP mm-hmm. in the early twenties, uh only to have it die in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And um and then another fellow by the name of George Holdham Tinkham of Massachusetts who was a real character uh and a fun person to write about, he uh he actually Was the first American to fire a shot in World War One against the central towers when he was visiting the front lines, and and an Italian commander uh, uh, of an artillery uh, 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 battalion uh, convinced him to pull the the firing lanyard on a cannon Mm -hmm. aimed at troops in Austria. Mm -hmm. He was also a guy who who named his uh, you know his political trophies after. uh, his uh, his uh, game trophies after political opponents. So he was he was a real character, uh, and he was also one of the people who, in the 1920s, when the House is is waging this battle between urban representatives and rural representatives uh, over apportionment, you know how seats are going to be handed out in the states. Uh, he's the guy who kind of stands up in the back and says, well, while you're talking about this, what about the 14th Amendment? What about African-American rights? What about the fact that there's a clause in the 14th Amendment that says mm-hmm. if you disenfranchise a group of qualified voters in your state, you lose that number from the total of your population figures, yeah. and what he was doing in essence was to uh, to go after southern representation in Congress uh-huh. because if if, they, if if reapportionment happens with lower population totals, the southerners are going to lose seats
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and this too, is important during this era because because the South is a one party um, uh, region, a, a solid democratic south. Uh, beginning in the in the 20th century, uh, the members, especially House members, uh, are running in very safe districts. They accrue seniority, they move up the chain of command, mm-hmm. and consequently, by the 1930s, the people who are running the key power committees in the House and and even in the Senate are by and large Southerners. Mm-hmm. Uh, appropriations committee, Ways and Means, Rules, um, any committee where. Anyone who wants to be a reformer, you know, would have to get their legislation through, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, more often than not, it was the Southern segregationist in charge of the committee.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that, but that makes perfect sense institutionally. Yeah, I, did, I had no idea. So it, it's
1: this is a it's a difficult uh a difficult story to tell, but you know we wanted to be honest about it mm-hmm. and uh, and also set the scene. Um, and uh, but you know, in in terms of African American representation, it's 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 a long. Uh, period without any.
0: Yeah, these are um, periods in which, and their characters about which I think we should probably think pretty carefully because, in a certain strange sense, they are us. I mean, we look back on someone like Woodrow Wilson, who in this era I happen to know the most mm-hmm. about among the people that you mentioned, and he, by our standards, held ideas uh, within his very large, purportedly very large gray matter, which were entirely contradictory. We can't right. understand. Uh, very easily Woodrow Wilson's mind, because on the one hand, you know, he wants to bring peace and freedom to the, um, you know, subject people of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, under the doctrine of uh, popular sovereignty, but then he also clears out Georgetown of uh, African Americans and moves in white people and institutes uh, um, a kind of a thoroughgoing regime of segregation in the city of Washington itself. Right. I mean, it really, you know, how, how these things can be put together, I don't know, but, I, you know, I imagine that um, you'd probably have to read Wilson's biography in order to understand how he thought that And I firmly believe this, how he thought that was the right thing to do. I mean, these were actually, I interviewed someone a few weeks ago about uh, the way the French treated their colonial troops. And, um, you know, on the one hand, they treated them well. On the other hand, they treated them very badly. But he said it was very important to remember that they were imperialists with um, good consciences. They didn't think right. they were doing something wrong, and I and I and I think that's very important to remember. With someone like Wilson or these other senators and Congresspeople, they they felt that this was the right thing to do, and really trying to come to grips with that is a is a, is a mighty task. At least it is for me. I can't I can't speak for you guys, but I
1: no, it, it, it's it's complicated, and and we also have to keep in mind that this is a period when you know, as you as you alluded to, this is. This is when Darwinian notions of of racial inequality were were at their peak, yeah. and and even even with some of the reformers, the, the the few brave individuals who are kind of pushing these ideas of well, we need an anti lynching bill, or we, you know, we need to stand up for the Fourteenth Amendment. Even these people held contradictory ideas. On the one hand, they're they're pushing for for protecting um black rights in the south but on uh, on the other hand when you know a little bit closer to home and in terms of internal change in in the house institutional change they're a little more reticent and um Uh, So you do have to, there are are definitely contradictory impulses at work.
0: Yeah, and this is not to excuse them by any means by our standards. Obviously, it's a horrible thing that they did. But nonetheless, it is kind of an interesting exercise to to try to understand them. I'm always amazed, uh, you know, when you read the very few things, actually, that Lincoln said about uh, the black race, as he would have called it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there there are things that that, that are surprising. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, you you don't expect these things to come out of the great liberator's mouth. But they did, and he thought they were correct. Um, So, you know, that sort of goes to show you that... uh, You know, the past really is a foreign country or even more than a foreign country. It's a foreign, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different planet. (laughs) (laughs) It has
1: its own unique context.
0: And it's funny, the older I get, you know, and as I said, I'm not young anymore. I mean, I remember things in the, you know, in the, in the sixties, I was very young then, but I remember things being said that uh, just are no longer said anymore. Mm-hmm. And they were said by people uh, who are of, of great prominence and significant intelligence, and they just are no longer said anymore. Um, it's it's uh, it's really quite for a historian. Growing old is a is really an enlightening thing, I have to say. The other the other thing I'll say about growing old, since you guys are all younguns, is that I don't trust my memory past about a week now. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that happened more than a week ago, if I tell you it happened. I, all bets off. <laughs> well, I don't know,
1: Marshall. If, if you're uh, if you're Michael Jordan's age, you're 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 not you're not that much older than uh, a few of us here. <laughs> yes, that's right.
0: All right. So um, let's go on then um, to the early 20th century, or the, I guess the mid 20th century. And Kathleen, this is your provenance, right? This is your area. My yes, record. it is. It yeah, is so... right. So here we have the return of African Americans. This part is called "Keeping the Faith." African Americans return to Congress. So why don't you tell us a little about that?
3: Sure. Well, "Keeping the Faith" comes from the famous catchphrase of Clayton Powell, and it really tried – the statement captures the growing momentum of black members and the increasing political activism of the civil rights movement during this era. Um, There were 13 members during this period, and Oscar Dupree's election in 1928 ended a nearly 30-year drought. Mm-hmm. The, the members that were in this period were, were very, very diverse, and much like Reconstruction in the early part of this era, it was one black member serving at one time. So Oscar de Priest was there by himself, mm-hmm. Arthur Mitchell was there by himself, Dawson for a while before Powell came in. And one thing that was quite a, a common theme during this period was the intense scrutiny that these members faced. They were under pressure not just to represent their constituents, but really to represent all black Americans. And this is something that we refer to in the book quite often and and call it surrogate representation. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something that members could really choose. It was thrust upon them. And in most cases, they accepted it, and they realized that this was, in some cases, a burden that they had to bear, that they had to represent all black Americans. It was particularly difficult for Oscar de Priest, who was a national symbol, and much was expected of him. Um, But he was coming in when there had been such a, drought and he was the only black member and he he did his best he he really he tried to confront some of the institutional racism for instance with the house restaurant that matt had talked about mm-hmm. and he was able to get uh the house to investigate but it, it inevitably their legislation wasn't passed it, it was um it was seen as a, a failure by blacks outside of, of congress mm-hmm. but he was in a, a very difficult position and then, as the the time period wore on, you had more members coming in, especially, of course, in the 1960s. And so, at least they had allies. Um, but before that, it was really just one one black member at a time. And a, a big difference from the period before, from Reconstruction, was almost all of these members were Democrats, mm-hmm. um, except for two, except for Oscar De Priest and Ed Brooke. And really, the the switch, the there are two reasons for it. Um, one was the, the Great Depression, of course, and the, the New Deal reforms that affected so many Americans, and especially black Americans who suffered from the, the economic downturn, and really felt that the Democratic Party had something to offer them. And so in this way, they, they felt that they could leave the Republicans and, and Hoover behind because they were going to a party that was listening to their needs.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then another thing, and in, in Chicago is, is a great place to look at this, in the first district, especially in the south side, is with DePriest, you had the machine politics, Mm -hmm. the machine that was so entrenched there, and they really courted African-American voters Mm -hmm. and and got African-Americans involved in the political system like Oscar Priest. And during the the Great Depression and and following in the the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, they they started to the Democratic Party as they grew stronger to follow the model by the Republicans, and they courted African-American voters and also got people like Mitchell and Dawson into the machine, and so you had this this gradual switch from Republican to to Democrat. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Um, It it was really a a fun and interesting period to to write about because the the members were so diverse, and and so much was expected of them. It was... um, the way that they were able to withstand the the pressure of having to represent, you know, not just a, a district, which I can imagine would just be so difficult, but to try to to represent the you know entire black population, and especially during the civil rights movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what you said about diversity because they really are, are very different. I mean, somebody like um, somebody like uh, Adam Clayton Powell and somebody like uh, what was his first name, Edmund Brooke. Ed, Ed Brooke. Ed right. Brooke. Right. They're, mm-hmm. they're very They come from very different backgrounds. They're, they're right. very Different people. Maybe you could just talk about those two a little bit.
2: Sure.
3: Uh well Adam Clayton Powell is uh how could he not be one of your favorites when you're no. writing about him? He <laughs> he had charisma, um and and he demanded attention and, and something that um that he really followed is, is he He did not want to wait patiently while things changed within the Congress and also outside. So he he came in and he let everyone know that he was going to be confrontational, and if he didn't like it, that was too bad. He, he didn't care.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And a couple of examples of that is um, some of the racism, institutional racism that these members faced, where he would have petty things that members would say that they didn't want to have an office nearby a black member or they didn't want to sit by a black member on the floor. And so when Powell found out about this, um, John Rankin, an avowed segregationist from Mississippi, he made it quite publicly known that he did not—he was not happy about Powell being there and certainly wouldn't sit near him on the floor. So Powell, literally in some cases stocked him on the floor, and on one occasion during one day he made him move five times. So he was not going to be intimidated by anyone, and he seemed to just enjoy the challenge. And then also with the House restaurant, where DePriest tried so hard to work within the system and to get legislation passed to end the segregation, Powell took a, a different approach. Um, we referred to him as a congressional irritant, and he definitely wasn't <laughs> irritant in, in many ways. He would go to the House restaurant frequently. He would bring his constituents there. He would order his staff to go there. Even if they weren't going to eat, he would just tell them, if you're not hungry, just go and sit there. Uh He was making a a very public stand. He was making people uncomfortable. That that was his approach. Ed Brooke came from a a much different uh, background than that. He was a a Republican. He was coming from Massachusetts. He also was coming into the Senate, the first first senator of the century, the first black senator of the century. He, um, He was much more mainstream, but he also talked about being welcomed in the Senate and having a, a different experience than Powell, mm-hmm. and that uh, the senators really didn't treat him any differently, yeah. and and that there there wasn't, um, he, he just had a very different experience, and then you also have to understand too that Powell is coming from Harlem, and his constituents yeah. loved his confrontational approach, yeah. and with Brooke, he's representing Massachusetts, which yeah. of course was liberal at the time, but he, he had a very different Group of people to answer to, and yeah. so he he had a, a different approach altogether.
0: Yeah, no, I I I find the two of them, the contrast between the two of them, very very interesting. And I suppose if you exaggerate it a little bit, you know, you can see in the two of them, on the one hand, the you know. Uh, the accommodationist attempt to win power on Brooke's side, and then on the other hand, the confrontationalist approach uh, on Adam Clayton Powell's, and these these approaches, until I, I don't know if they're still with us, but they certainly in my life have been with us. Um, you know, it, I, I, I don't know if it's right to mention these people, but some like Alan Keyes. You know, is quite an establishment figure, but then on the other hand, you know, you have your Jesse Jacksons and Jesse Jackson Jr. who mm-hmm. who are really much more confrontational in, in their approach. And and these two approaches, I think, go back. I'm not an African American historian, but I think they go way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. and I was very, I was, I didn't really know anything about Brooke until I read the book, but I found it absolutely fascinating.
1: If I can just interject about yeah. Brooke, that he had a, a very enlightening uh, anecdote that he told in his memoirs recently, uh, which Kathleen included in the profile, uh, and it's. It kind of get, it gets to the way the Senate operates versus the House mm-hmm. in addition to, uh, you know, kind of race issues, the broader race issues. He, he remembered going down to the Senate swimming pool at one point and walked in. And in the pool is Strom Sermons and two <laughs> other segregationist senators. And he, he totally expected to just be snubbed. But the three of them each warmly invited him yeah. into the pool and said, you make use of these facilities you know to, to to the you know the best of your you know your every women desire you know uh, please use yeah. facilities yeah and uh and and it, and he said it it that probably bothered him more than it would have if they had just snubbed him, because yeah. these were the same people who were getting out on the floor and supporting legislation that uh, obviously didn't have African Americans—you know—they didn't have uh, African Americans uh, you know, in the best interest.
2: Yeah,
1: and and that gets a little bit to the way the Senate operates, you know, the, the chummy, clubby atmosphere of the Senate,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, and it's you know genteel traditions of uh, you know. Uh, to to go along, get along and uh, where the house uh, you know, a little bit more hangs out in public (laughs) view
3: and another point I think is important to stress is that you didn't always have these opposite extremes it wasn't that you had someone that was Mm -hmm. so confrontational or someone that was going to be an institutional player you had someone like Charlie Dix from Detroit Mm -hmm. who served uh, starting in 1955 and through 1980 and he really tried to adopt both approaches, he Mm -hmm. would be confrontational and outspoken when he needed to be and he also was a, a real, he had a good, solid institutional knowledge. He was on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He chaired the D.C. Committee. He was the first chair of the CBC. So he was really able to to play both sides, and he used it effectively. He was able to get legislation passed, and he was able to satisfy his constituents. So you did have some people that were very, very um, politically astute and felt comfortable playing mm-hmm. both of those roles and, mm-hmm. and did it quite well.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. We should also mention, um, since this sheds a little bit of light on uh, Barack Obama, the, the significant role that Illinois and Chicago particularly played in um, this era and the next era in moving black Americans into uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Maybe somebody could just say a few words about that. Yeah, yes,
3: silence. sir, I'll, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first district is uh, of, of Chicago is one that we highlighted in the contextual essay, and then it's also going to be something that, um, people can read about it in the, the individual profiles in De Priest and Dawson, Mitchell, Metcalf. It's the black representation there has has been throughout the, the 20th century. Uh-huh. And really, and this is something that I, I touched upon briefly. The the importance of this and the, the increased opportunities were due to the machine politics that started with the uh, Republican machine bosses that realized the potential of. Blacks within their their district or within the the city of Chicago,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and were able to not just to encourage them to become involved in the machine, but to to become political players and mm-hmm. gave them that important experience. And then the Democrats took on this and this approach, realizing how effective it was. And so it was a, a you know chance for African Americans that had never had a chance to. Become involved in politics mm-hmm. to suddenly have the you know the highest feel that they could go to Congress or mm-hmm. or have a chance to be really important players within within Chicago and then you'll see this model followed in, in other northern cities as well like Detroit and, and Pittsburgh and, and New York. There's a good book,
0: The First District there in Chicago. has, anyone, has, has anyone written that book? Just
3: about um, the not not just about not just about the district. We we certainly found some secondary sources that that covered that, but not just on that particular one. And you're right. I mean, it, it, the history there is incredibly rich. Maybe you should start a graduate program.
2: <laughs> 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 Take out a
0: graduate student. I'm write that for you. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, a good idea. Or you know, a fellowship program. You know, you could have a mm-hmm. congressional fellowship. You come. You could help them out. You know, since you guys know where all the archives are and everything else, and you have access to these people. I mean, actually, that would be. That would be a wonderful thing. If anyone is listening, give these people money to start a fellowship program for graduate study <laughs> in Washington. Thank sure, you, yeah, Brock, if you're there, now you send these people a check, okay? And none of that funny stimulus package money either. I went hard So let's talk a little bit about the last year, and that is called Permanent Interest, the Expansion and Organization and Rising Influence of African Americans in Congress. And at this point, really, the number of African Americans um, balloons. Who would like to take that on?
2: I'll start, but
1: Kathleen and, and Laura can certainly okay. jump in because we all had a hand in this one. Um, yeah, this, this time period runs from uh, 1970 on up, and, and as you point out, the numbers statistically go through the roof. Seventy percent of uh, all the African-Americans who've served in Congress were elected at, in 1970 or later, and um, there have been, well, if if, uh, if and when Mr. Burris is seated, looks like he will be now, uh, the the senator uh, from uh, Illinois, and we're up to, I believe, about 125 mm-hmm. throughout congressional history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get a, a sense of the numbers there. Um, and a, a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, the, the civil rights movement having come to fruition, uh, particularly the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, you see, uh, uh, particularly from southern districts, but also because of redistricting in uh, northern urban districts. Uh, You see a a leap in the the number of House members who are elected. Uh, You see, for the first time since Reconstruction, uh, black Americans elected from the South, Andrew Young from a district uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in Atlanta and Barbara Jordan uh, from a district in Houston. And so you see change beginning to happen in that sense. When you get more numbers in, uh, that allows you to organize, And, and that had been one of the the goals very early on for uh, for Charlie Diggs, who Kathleen had mentioned earlier.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he wanted to create a caucus of, um, of African-American members. And in 1971, he had had an informal caucus for one Congress before that. Uh, but uh, in 1971, the Congressional Black Caucus is founded. Mm-hmm. And that has profound repercussions, both internally, and externally, uh, legislatively, for uh, for uh, black Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll speak to one of them, and then I'll turn it over to Kathleen, because she, she worked with the Congressional Black Caucus materials quite a bit. Um, one of the things that happens inside the House is that with the Congressional Black Caucus, now you have uh, an advocacy group who can go to the leadership and uh, lobby for members to get put on uh, powerful committees.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so it's during this period that, for the first time, we have African American members on committees like Appropriations and the Ways and Means Committee mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Armed Services Committee.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and, and this is largely because the Black Caucus has gone to the, the Speaker and the Majority Leader and said, "Look, we need we need representation across the full spectrum of
2: committees here." Mm-hmm.
1: And um, by the end of this period, I'll, I'll leap ahead, um, you see uh, what in a lot of ways is, is kind of an ironic reversal because during the civil rights era um, in the House, uh, Southerners controlled committee chairmanships and uh, the key power points. Mm-hmm. By the 110th Congress, 111th Congress, which we've just entered, uh, it's it, African-Americans hold uh, very important uh, positions throughout the House. Uh, A a couple hold full committee chairmanships. Mm -hmm. Um, Charlie Rangel on ways and means and John Conyers on judiciary to name Mm -hmm. two. But what's interesting is if you look one layer below that at the subcommittees, in the 110th Congress, there were um, – it varied over time because we lost a few African-American members. Uh, But uh, 42, 43 – members in the House, half of them held subcommittee chairmanships. And subcommittee chairmanships are, are kind of the, the, the traditional route
2: mm-hmm.
1: to, to greater positions of power. And so you you see a reversal from the civil rights era. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the CBC's work to, uh, to to get recognition for these members and get them on to, to more powerful assignments and committees. Mm-hmm. And Kathleen can address some of the legislative issues. Definitely. Well,
3: and I just wanted to follow up with what Matt said, and he mentioned armed services, and there's there's a really good story about uh, Ron Dellums at this yeah. <laughs> point. Um, the CBC was, was gaining power, and they were doing it quite quickly, which was impressive, because this was going to be in the, the early 70s, and they were just formed in 1971. And they put together um, a very a concerted effort to get Ron Dellums who wanted to be on armed services. Now, Ron Dellums came from Berkeley and he had run on an anti-war platform and he made his feelings on Vietnam quite clear. And Edward Abair of Louisiana was the chairman, and he did not want Dellums on his committee. No way, no how. Yeah. And at the same time, he also had to deal with Pat Schroeder, who wanted to be on the committee. So this is Abair who has to deal with an African-American and a woman who both want to yeah. be on his committee. So you can understand how he's feeling about yeah. that. So they are, the CBC was able to successfully, they were able to draft a letter and put pressure on Speaker Adler at the time and get Dellums on the committee.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, Bear and this is another story that Schroeder likes to tell, was so upset with the fact that his power—you know—that he was supposed to be able to decide who was on his committee, and he was forced to take a, a woman and an African American. That he allegedly made the two of them share one chair during the first committee meeting. <laughs>
2: and,
3: and this is something that Dellums has also also supported. So even though change, change was happening, it certainly wasn't happening with with open arms in some yeah, cases.
0: No, it really sounds like that. It really sounds and, like
3: that. And the CBC too—it was very impressive because they had you know, small numbers in the beginning, and yet. Early on, just when they first started, they were able to to get to make headlines, to get the press. And, for example, in 1971, right after they formed, or right, or right when they were in the process of forming, they boycotted Nixon's State of the Union address mm-hmm. in, in protest for for him not listening to to African Americans' issues and and supporting civil rights, in their opinion, and. Two months later, they were able to get a face-to-face meeting with him, which is unprecedented. And this is just a very good example of how being able to form in a group and to to have a unified front, how they were able to become a a substantial block.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: And another thing relating to the CBC and also this period, which is very, very important, was the the movement against apartheid. Um, This was something that... United and in some ways defined black members during this period. It, it was a movement that started in the the late 60s by Charlie Diggs again, and then it was it was picked up by uh, Ron Dellums and other members. Ron Dellums was the the first member to call for economic sanctions against South Africa, and the CBC was very much involved in the the high profile movement that carried on into the 1970s and the 1980s. In, a lot of the um, the sit-ins and the mm-hmm. eventual arrest of people at the South African embassy.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so you see some of these high profile things going on outside of Congress and then you see um, institutional work that they're doing, understanding how change can be made within the system. So all of a sudden you have, have such a huge change from just the early part of, of the, the century where there were one, two, three, four members and now all of a sudden you have um, even when it's just in the teens, that they're able to unify and people have to take their concerns seriously.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's, it's an interesting. And now the Congressional Black Caucus is a it's a, it's a big deal, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I hate to say it, but we're almost out of time. And uh, I want to uh, close by asking two questions. The first one is our traditional question. And then the last one is a surprise. Uh, and the traditional question is, what is next for you guys? What are you guys working on now?
1: well uh we're we're enjoying a time when we're not uh, drafting essays for <laughs> a yeah. book that's on a yeah. tight deadline right. um we're uh we're working on some uh, some projects we we have an oral history program which uh, uh kathleen is uh manages and uh we're we're looking forward to uh to to doing some interviews in the next year. We we focus on long-time staff members, uh people who um either kind of work behind the scenes on committees or from member offices uh or uh, support folks and uh and we have a number of uh interviews lined up. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting way for us to 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 learn uh, the nuts and bolts of institutional history, and we're looking forward uh in the not too distant future to put all that material up on the web mm-hmm. and uh we're we're also uh we we handle a number of reference questions that 's kind of our bread and butter uh-huh. uh from from day to day um you you know
0: have, have hispanic, hispanic Americans in Congress
1: oh yeah we do we do uh that's uh the, we have two more books in the series okay. coming up and uh hispanic americans uh and uh, asian pacific Americans. Yeah. And uh, those, those stories are going to be uh, quite different, both, you know, uh, unlike these women in Congress and, uh, and black Americans in Congress, there will be stories that will be driven by uh, foreign policy and, and U.S. expansion. Uh-huh. And, uh, and for, for Hispanic Americans, the story extends all the way back to the 1820s because our first Hispanic American is a delegate from Florida who was a Jacksonian slave owner and Indian hunter. Huh. Uh yeah. yeah. So so it's it's quite a story to tell. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. then our story of Asian Pacific Americans uh really starts in the 20th century. The yeah. first uh Asian Pacific American is a, uh, is a uh a fellow by the name of Dalip San from the Imperial Valley in California who was elected in the mid 1950s. Uh so that 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 too is a much different story to tell.
0: God love the United
2: States. Those stories. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
4: Only, yeah. I'm also going to interject with a shameless ahead, plug.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
4: um, we're always, uh, we just got done with a lot of our updates to our website for the 111th Congress. Oh. And uh, our website is a it's sort of a jewel of information. Yeah, I think people yeah. are surprised sometimes when they call us and we say, oh, we have that on the web. Yeah. Um, so it's at clerk.house.gov, no www, and it's the art and history tab. Yeah.
1: And, and um, we should also mention that there is an accompanying website for the uh, the Black Americans book, which has all the material up and, and some Uh, additional material, uh, which uh, Kathleen can speak to very quickly here. Uh,
3: We have some educational activities for teachers, mainly aimed at high school teachers. Mm -hmm. And we also have a section for any teachers, middle school, high school, and college professors who want a copy of the book. They can go to our website, Mm for Women in Congress and also Black Americans in Congress, and if they just fill out a very simple form and send it to us, tell us how they're going to use it in their classes. We'll send you a complimentary copy of the book.
0: Well, that's terrific. That's very, that's very nice of you. Well, I hope a lot of people Thank buy you. the book. Okay, <laughs> th- here's the final question. And I want you guys to be brief here. Uh, what are you going to do on Inauguration Day? What happens on Inauguration Day for you guys?
4: battening down the hatches and staying home. Yeah.
1: We were going to come ask you for tickets. Yeah, yeah, no, you you right.
0: played one-on-one against bro I beat a Barack. so I don't think he sent me <laughs> any tickets. He doesn't like to remember that. No, I says, well, anyway, I just want to thank you guys for being on the show. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I should tell our listeners that there was a little mistake made by yours truly, and that we had to do this again. But I think it turned out fantastically. And um, again, when these other two books come out, and if you have any other projects you want to uh, talk to me about, please, please give me a call, and we'll do more interviews, hopefully just oh. one at a time this time. Okay,
1: we'd love to, Marshall. Thank, thank you for your help.
0: All right, absolutely. Thanks very much for being on the show. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Matt Wasnoski, Kathleen Johnson, and Lori Turner O'Hara about their new book, Black Americans in Congress, eighteen seventy to two thousand seven. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.